Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, political science, and history. And today's topic is putting Patent on trial. Our speaker is Julian Jackson, who is an emeritus professor of modern French history at Queen Mary at the University of London. Julian is one of the preeminent scholars focused on Vichy France. He's written extensively about France in the Second World War and has published an important biography of Charles de Gaulle. I want to discuss Julian's new book entitled France on Trial, The Case of Marshal Patin. This topic is of particular interest to me because my grandparents and my mom lived in Vichy, France during the Second World War and had to live in hiding for years because as Jews, they were fearful of being sent to the concentration camps. My grandfather wrote his memoirs, which he called The McKee Connection, which is available on Kindle, and I am the voice of its audible book if you want to listen to it. In addition, my Aunt Sharon made a documentary film about my family's escape called A Song for You, which is a wonderful film to watch, and a link is provided in the transcript. Political trials of former heads of state happen frequently. President Trump is now fighting for his life in court. Marshal Patin collaborated with the Nazis and was arrested and tried immediately after the Germans surrendered. I want to learn from Julian about what crimes was Patin indicted. Was it a political circus or did the trial get into the real bad actions by the Vichy regime? I am personally disgusted with Vichy and its leadership for facilitating the roundup and the death of the entire Marseille Jewish community where my grandparents lived. That said, we live in a world of ambiguity as it relates to right and wrong. France lost the war, and a new French leader had to deal with its occupiers. But often, without any German interference, Vichy aggressively adopted anti-Semitic laws that put its Jewish community on a path to the death camps. I want to dedicate this podcast to my grandma Gizzi, who was clever and tenacious in getting my family out of France and to America in 1943. Buckle up, because this episode gets personal. Julian, please begin with your six-minute remarks. My book called France on Trial, The Case of Marshal Pétain, is an account of the trial of the leader in France of the collaborating government that was in power between 1940 and 44. And of course, there were trials all over Europe after the liberation. There were the Nuremberg trials, the most famous, but there were trials of Quisling in Norway, Tokyo trials. But what I think makes the French one particularly interesting, which is why I felt it was worth devoting a whole book, it's the French who have created the court that is going to try a French leader. It's not the allies, it's not the victors, it's not the outsiders, it's the French trying the French. In the French case, we have the trial of the greatest hero of the 20th century in France, the man who had won the famous Battle of Verdun in 1916, the man who is like a god in France. So it's not an ordinary trial. It's the trial of a hero who had possibly become a traitor. And what I try to do in the book is to make this trial live. I mean, I want the readers to think that they're there in this hot sweaty courtroom in the middle of Paris in the summer of 1945. The story is meant to be a window into the history of France in the 20th century, the terrible, unexpected, cataclysmic defeat of the French armies in 1940, and then the setting up of an authoritarian regime called the Vichy regime and the collaboration with the Germans, the deportation of Jews. These are 
terrible memories still for the French today. And so I want to use the trial as a way of watching the French debate this extraordinarily difficult and raw past. And one of the points of the book is to show that the crimes of Pétain today aren't necessarily what they thought was the crime of Pétain in 1945. Indeed, at the last presidential election in France, only two years ago, the extreme right candidate Eric Zemmour, one of the things he's famous for saying is that Pétain, the head of the Vichy regime, protected French Jews and that the Jews of France should be thankful to what Pétain did for them. Now, Zemmour only got about 7% of the vote, but that's not nothing. And the fact that these issues are still debated seems to me to make this trial not just a piece of dead history, but something that is really very much alive in France today. The first few witnesses at Patin's trial were the French politicians who were in charge during the 1940 Battle of France. And the first question at the trial was whether the war had been lost when Patin had asked the Germans for the armistice. I find this puzzling because there seems little doubt that the French had lost the war and lost it badly. When they put Patin on a trial, what was he guilty of? What was his crime? There were many different answers to what his crime might have been. And for General de Gaulle, the man, of course, who led the resistance from London during the war and then came back to be the leader of France after the war, the answer was very simple. For de Gaulle, Pétain's crime was to have signed an armistice with Germany. That was treason, because de Gaulle believed that it was still possible that France could remain in the war. The armistice was the crime. But there are other people who took the view that the armistice probably was necessary. France had been beaten in 1940. It was impossible to go on fighting. Pétain's crime was not to have signed an armistice which put an end to the continuing massacre of French civilians and troops and so on, but to have used that armistice as a way of overthrowing the democratic government that existed in France before the war and setting up a new authoritarian regime. And for others, the crime of Pétain was to collaborate with the Germans beyond what the armistice insisted upon, basically taking the view, the Germans are going to win the war overall, why don't we start to prepare doing a deal with them? In a particular moment that was symbolic of that policy of collaboration was Pétain's famous meeting with Hitler in October 1940, when he was photographed And the photograph went round the world. I mean, it was on the front pages of newspapers all over the world, showing Pétain, the French war hero, shaking the hand of Hitler. So there are many possible answers to what Pétain's crime was. And part of the problem of the trial was precisely to tease out which one should be prioritised, which was the real problem. By way of background for our audience World War I had been a long slugfest that lasted five years in the French trenches. But this time, when the Germans invaded France in June 1940, the battle was over in a couple of weeks. The Harvard historian Ernest May titled his book, Strange Victory. The French loss was totally unexpected, both in its severity and speed. What I found strange was that immediately after the war, with the memory so raw, 
that anyone would have opposed the decision to get an armistice. There seems little question that the French lost. My grandparents and my three-year-old mom at the time were living in France when the Germans invaded. My grandfather was enlisted with the French Foreign Legion, and my grandma Gizzi was with my mom in Paris. When the German army approached Paris, the city was told to evacuate. My grandma went to the Paris train station, which was in a state of complete pandemonium. There were no trains. Tens of thousands of people were waiting on the platform for hours. That scene in the film Casablanca with Bogey and Sam patiently waiting for Ilsa on the platform was fictitious. The reality was total chaos. When the first train entered the station, the place became a madhouse. And miraculously, my grandmother and mom got on the train. When the train left the station, the conductor announced he was heading south with no set destination. There was a consensus that an armistice was necessary to prevent further slaughter of soldiers and civilians. Continuing the fight seemed pointless. Well, the experience you describe of your grandparents and your mother is an experience shared by literally millions of people. Something like six million people left their homes. Sometimes they weren't lucky enough to get a trade. They would actually literally be just pushing a wheelbarrow and they were being bombed by German planes as they fled south. Fear and panic and a kind of collapse of a whole society. And that's why when Pétain made a famous speech on the 16th of June, saying that it's with a heavy heart, with a cœur serré, that I feel it's now time to end the fighting, a lot of people did feel, there's no question about it, a relief. Pétain's initial popularity was that he was offering a kind of protection, an end to this seemingly useless massacre. Pétain made the argument that the military disaster resulted from the corruption of French society. The French historian Marc Bloch wrote a book called Strange Defeat, describing the complete collapse of everything around the French. Bloch kind of said, well, look, you know, this is something deep that's happened. It isn't just a sort of defeat on the battlefield. It's symptomatic of much wider failure of French institutions, French intellectuals, French leaders, French politicians, everything. This is something deep. But Ernst May's book, and I believe that he's right, and it's the same position that I've kind of taken in my own book on the fall of France, is that it was a military defeat caused by some bad strategic miscalculations taken by the French commander-in-chief Gamelin. He made a bad call about where the Germans would invade. He got it wrong. And by the time he realized what was happening, that the Germans were sending their tanks through a part of France that he had believed to be impregnable, the Ardennes Forest, it was too late the battle was lost. And then there was panic. There is panic when battles are lost. It's understandable. But this doesn't mean that France was rotten, that French society was decadent, that it was all inevitable, which is what, of course, Pétain's Vichy regime wanted to say. The Pétain regime wanted to say, look, we lost because we sinned, because we were decadent. That word decadent was used a lot. So what we're going to do is end the fighting, and we're going to remake a new authoritarian France, which the church will play a role, the family will be restored, a kind of package of conservative values. Immediately after the armistice was announced, Charles de Gaulle arrived in London 
when he makes a very famous speech. He tells the French that the war is not over and that the fight must continue from the French Empire. What did de Gaulle say? This was a military defeat. That's exactly what he said in his first speech in London. This was a military defeat, explained not by the decadence of the French, not by the French character, explained by the German superiority in the air. We made some big miscalculations. But that is only the first battle in what is going to be a world war. Look to the future the Germans are going to lose, and we don't want to be on the losing side. We want to be on the winning side. And that is why I want France to continue in the war. He was aware that on the soil of France, the battle was over. And he didn't want the French to go on being massacred indefinitely. But for him, what mattered was to let the French know that this wasn't something about them being a rotten society, that they were a great nation and they had a great future, what de Gaulle famously called the idea of France, allied with the Americans, allied with the British. The experience of your grandmother and your mother is a tragic experience shared by many, but de Gaulle would have said, let us look beyond the horror of the present to the possibilities of the future. When the battle of France is raging and things are catastrophic, Winston Churchill rushes to France to meet with the French leadership to encourage them to continue the fight. Churchill makes an unbelievable offer to merge the UK and France into a single country. That way, French troops can join the British in the evacuation from Dunkirk and fight another day. What happened? Well, there was this extraordinary offer that Churchill made for Franco-British Union. This was on the 16th of June, the very last days of the Battle of France. And the point of this offer, which de Gaulle also supported, was purely symbolic. It was just to say to the French government, look, if you fight on, we will not only be with you, our two nations will become one. Now, nobody believed the two nations would become one. It was a way of trying to buck up the morale of the French government. The proposal, which was far-fetched, was intended to be throwing a kind of final life raft to Renault, saying, come on, you know, the British will be with you. But what's the point of shackling yourself to the British? Because the British are about to lose. And the French general, Vagon, who was very much in the camp of Pétain, said famously that England will have a neck wrung like a chicken in the next few weeks. Another member of the government said, why should we attach ourselves to a corpse? Former Prime Minister Renault is the first witness at Pétain's trial. He uses his time on the witness stand to defend his policies and decisions that he made when he was the French leader during the Battle of France. Reynaud explains why he resigned his office and why he did not evacuate the French government to the French colonies in North Africa. What confuses me is that this is a criminal trial, but this court resembles a war commission trying to ascertain lessons for the next war. The first week was these prosecution witnesses, former politicians of the Third Republic, the regime that collapsed in 1940, coming to blame Pétain, but to justify themselves. And all these ghosts of the past are coming back to defend themselves, and defending themselves means saying that it was Pétain's fault. So yes, that gave a slightly bad taste to the trial in the first week, because it has to be said that 
if Pétain wasn't particularly popular with the population by 1945, nor were these old Third Republic politicians, why should they put all the blame for their own inadequacies on this 90-year-old man who's sitting there in a chair, barely able to understand what's going on? One indictment against Pétain was that he took power illegally and subverted the French constitution. Here we are. In the middle of the Battle of France, 100,000 French soldiers were killed in battle over the previous two weeks. 100,000 are wounded, as well as untold suffering by the civilian population. Prime Minister Renault has just resigned, and the president of France turned to Patin to become the head of state. And now, after the war, they want to charge Patin with taking power unconstitutionally. I mean, you can't be serious. There was a lot of argument about whether or not the new regime was legal or not, and whether it was constitutional. Members of parliament could be summoned to Vichy, and they're given the chance to vote full powers to Marshal Pétain to draft a new constitution. It's got an envelope of legality about it. But then what does Pétain do when he has been granted the power to draft a new constitution. He doesn't draft a new constitution. He simply uses the full powers to pass a series of laws which make him, to all intents and purposes, a dictator. Here in the U.S., we have a single constitution since 1787 with continuity and tradition. This is not the case in France. There were frequent revolutions and new constitutions. During the Algerian crisis of 1958, Charles de Gaulle took over as the head of state in an unconstitutional way, and then promptly wrote a new constitution in a matter not too different from Patin. Was Patin's Vichy government legal? He'd been legally voted. But you could reply, well, these are details, and they are details in a sense. The country had gone through a dramatic crisis. It's not surprising that people said we need a change of regime. The same had happened in 1870, when the French had been beaten by the Prussians. The same happened, as you pointed out, in 1958, when there was a kind of uprising in Algeria. The regime fell and a new constitution came out. But I think the more important thing is what Pétain then chose to do with the power that he had been granted. Right. You could replace one regime by another. But then if you start to use that power to criminalize sections of the population, to persecute Jews, Freemasons, communists, anybody you don't like, to arrest a whole series of politicians. Many of the people who were testifying in court in 1945 had been arrested the moment Pétain came to power. What had they been arrested for? They certainly weren't traitors. Paul Renault, the man who wanted to go on fighting, wasn't a traitor. Even if there was a semblance of legality, what then happened was a regime that set about censoring the press, abolishing democracy, and starting to persecute minorities. That's what in the second and third weeks the trial started to become about. That's to say collaboration, persecution, repression, authoritarianism. In the first few weeks of Batan's trial, one critical question was whether as a policy matter, Prime Minister Renault should have evacuated the French government to Algeria and continued the war against the Germans. I want to bring in my family story during that critical second week of June 1940. As I mentioned previously, my grandmother and mom took a train 
from Paris to the Baritz, which is located near the French-Spanish border on the Atlantic coast. My grandfather was in the French Foreign Legion, and there were no cell phones or internet, so families were split up and unable to communicate. My grandmother suspected that my grandfather was probably in Algeria, which is where the French Legion was primarily based. So she rushed to the port where a boat was chartered to go to Algiers. The ship captain made an announcement over the loudspeaker that there was no food or water aboard and that because of the raging battle in the Mediterranean, he did not know how long the voyage would take. He encouraged everyone to load up on supplies. My grandma hurried to town to stock up, but when she returned to the port, the boat was already pulling out of the harbor. She sat down on a park bench and cried. A couple of days later, she read in the newspaper that that ship had been attacked, sank, and there were no survivors. My point from telling the story was that transporting the French army to North Africa by sea at that moment was very dangerous, logistically complicated, and limited by the number of available vessels. I've talked about this book with a lot of people. I've done a lot of podcasts and different interviews. And curiously, no one really wants to talk about what you want to talk about, which I'm very pleased because you are talking about, in a way, the heart of the issue. Few people are interested in as much detail as you are. And perhaps that's partly because of your experience of your own family and the fact that if your grandparents had got onto that boat, you probably wouldn't be here. Exactly. I think we've got to sort out two things if we're going to really explore the North African option. One is what number of soldiers could have got to North Africa to be a plausible you know, fighting force later in the war. And then how many politicians, key figures in the French government could have got there. Transporting thousands, tens of thousands, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of soldiers, is a very different matter from, say, a hundred politicians. The latter, easy enough. And indeed, a boat did leave Bordeaux for North Africa with uh, about 50 politicians on it. There was a kind of window, a strange window, between Pétain saying, I want an armistice, and the actual armistice being signed. So he says, I want the armistice on 16 June, and it's actually signed on the 22nd. So there's that strange window when it hasn't happened. And various French politicians want to be secure in North Africa if in case, as it were, the conditions of the armistice turn out to be impossible and it must be necessary to say no and go on fighting. A boat called the Massilia sets off with many of the people who ended up testifying in the trial. By the time they arrive in North Africa, Casablanca, the armistice has been signed. So now these people who had left France, right, to go on fighting seem like deserters, who have left the country which has now signed a peace or armistice with Germany. My book ends with a long counterfactual argument because the defence of Pétain in the trial is there was no alternative. He would have said to the French armies in the field, well, you go on fighting. Many of them would go on being killed because it's quite wrong to think that the French army had collapsed. Let's just go back to the state of the French army. There was an initial collapse, panic, because of the mistakes of the high command in May. But by June, the French were actually fighting very well again, and they were holding the Germans off. It is the bottom line. The French had lost in France, but they could have won another month, 
And of course, a lot of people would have been killed. This would have been the window of opportunity to send members of the government to North Africa, to send troops to North Africa. So it was not an impossible situation. Patin agreed to the armistice. And the next critical question for the Allies is what would happen to the French Navy? The British demand that either the French scuttle their battleships or take them to the French Caribbean island of Guadeloupe to keep these ships out of Hitler's hands. When the French refuse, Churchill orders an attack on the French Navy in Algeria at Mers el Kabir, resulting in the deaths of 1,500 French soldiers. What happened? Yeah, the French Navy was, for the British, the most worrying possible consequence of the French leaving the war and signing an armistice with Hitler. What was going to happen to the Navy? That was the thing that most worried the British. The armistice said that the Navy was simply going to remain in French ports, would simply be out of the war. The British, of course, couldn't be sure that the Germans would respect that. And that's why Churchill took the very difficult decision in uh, the beginning of July 1940 to give those French ships which were docked in North Africa the chance, as it were, to rally the British to go to the West Indies or to face a British attack. And he did it because he just felt he couldn't trust the Germans or even necessarily trust the French after the signing of the armistice. And so he ordered the bombing of the French fleet. And That was a very fatal decision in the sense that it stoked Vichy's anglophobia. It made it much more difficult for de Gaulle in London to recruit French supporters, because who's going to want to join someone whose country has bombed your fleet and killed something like 1,500 French sailors? So that was a really scarring moment. So yes, for the British, the fleet was a key issue. It was a great waste for the Allies, a fleet that could have been important to the Allied war effort, but it was never used by the Germans. So although the fleet was something that terribly worried people in 1940, in the end it turns out to be less of an issue than people had thought it was going to be. Churchill's pragmatic and probably necessary attack on the French fleet at Messel Kabir stoked Vichy anglophobia and certainly undermined de Gaulle's credibility. After the armistice, the Germans took 1.5 million French prisoners of war to Germany. Patin was very worried about these men who were working in German factories, and Patin suggested that their safety drove his collaboration with the Germans. What do you think of Patin's argument? Well, the prisoners of war were a big issue for Vichy, but we mustn't exaggerate. Obviously, there were people who were deported from France once the occupation was underway, both Jews and resistors, who were sent to concentration camps and suffered terrible fate. But the prisoners of war, broadly speaking, were treated according to the international conventions. When they signed the armistice, I don't think Vichy thought that the war would go on much longer. They thought probably Britain would give up by the autumn of 1940, the war would be over, peace would be made, and then the prisoners of war would come back. They would be part of a wider peace settlement. But what happened was what you might call the provisional. The armistice became permanent because the British went on fighting, and then the Germans invaded the Eastern Front, and then the Americans joined. So the war went on for five years. And so suddenly, these prisoners of war, as you quite rightly say, they later on used to work in German factories and fields. 
But for Vichy, it isn't that they're going to be terribly maltreated. It's that they become a cause of massive unpopularity for the regime because Pétain had signed an armistice to make things better for the French. And what do the French see? One and a half million French men who are still prisoners of war. Another big issue is the line of demarcation between the two parts of France. Because when the armistice was signed, one of its key terms was that half of France would be occupied by the Germans and the other half would be sort of semi-independent run by Vichy. Just to clarify for the audience, northern France, including Paris, was occupied by the Germans and southern France was ruled by Pétain's French government located in Vichy that collaborated with the Germans but were not directly ruled by them. Paris is occupied by Germans. When Vichy signed the armistice, they thought, well, this is good provisional, it'll be over in six weeks, and then we'll be back to something like normal. Hitler may demand things in a peace treaty, but at least we'll go back to some kind of normality. So when that doesn't happen, Vichy's also trying to get the demarcation line alleviated because it's crippling for the French economy. But as the war goes on, the Germans are now asking for able-bodied French young men to go and work in German factories. They're starting to conscript French labourers. Collaborations seem to be making things worse. We're back to the what-if question. You know, what if there had been no Vichy and if France had been fully occupied by the Germans, would things have been worse? Well, the argument was... France would suffer the fate of Poland, wiped off the face of the earth, you know, starvation. That's almost certainly nonsensical. No Western European country, Belgium, Norway, Denmark, Holland, suffered the same fate as Poland. Poland was completely different. For Hitler, the Poles were Slavs. They were barely superior in his racial hierarchy to the Jews. But that was not how Hitler viewed Western Europe. So to say that Vichy preserved France from Polandization, as it was called, I think is an invention and a fantasy. Let's talk about the Jews next. One of Patan's government's first actions was to define a Jew. Vichy defined a Jew as a person who has one Jewish grandparent. And that compared to the German law that defines a Jew as having two Jewish grandparents. Jewish employment by industry was limited to be pro rata for the population of the country. Jewish college professors, lawyers, and doctors were overrepresented at like 20% of France as compared to the Jewish population in the country of only 1%. So many of the Jews in these occupations were forced out of work. My grandfather was a doctor and a psychoanalyst. He had been a faculty member at the Freud Institute at the University of Vienna. In Vichy, he gave up being a doctor and instead were clandestinely as an analyst. Vichy also demanded that Jews sell their business interests. Why was Vichy so anti-Semitic? Well, they call my chapter on the Jewish question, the absent Jews. And the point I'm making there is it's very surprising how little the issue of the persecution of the Jews, of anti-Semitism, was discussed at the trial. In 1945, nobody... Anywhere in Europe had really comprehended the Holocaust, as we now call it, or the Shoah, as it tends now to be called in France. So, for example, when people who'd been deported to camps in Germany came back in 1945, those who were still alive, 
there was no distinction made by French public opinion between those people who had been deported as Jews and those people who had been deported as resistors. But there clearly is a difference because the Jews were deported not because of anything they did, but because of who they were, and they were deported for one reason, which was to kill them, whereas the resistors were deported in terrible conditions, but it wasn't the case that the only outcome was extermination. And you've got to remember that in 1945, actually, there was quite a lot of anti-Semitism. The Holocaust was subsidiary. It wasn't ignored, but it wasn't the big issue of the Nuremberg trials. The big issue of the Nuremberg trials was the culpability of Hitler in causing the war. That was what really excited the Nuremberg prosecutors. And it's not really till the trial of Eichmann in Jerusalem in 1961, after his extradition by the Israelis, that the issue of what happened to the Jews becomes central to memory. Jews weren't very popular at this time in France. Why were they not very popular? Because Jews who were coming back in 1945 quite reasonably wanted to take back the apartments that they had lived in before they were arrested and deported. Of course, these apartments had since been on the open market and had been bought by French people who didn't want to give up the apartments to the Jews. And so these people formed in sort of associations to defend their rights. They said, we're the rightful owners. They said, well, if we hadn't bought the flats, the Germans would have taken them over. So there are even anti-Jewish demonstrations by these new property owners in Paris. It's almost inconceivable to us today to think that there could be anti-Semitic demonstrations on the streets in 1945 in May by people who wanted to hold on to their property, which was actually the property of the Jews who had lost it because they had been expelled. So that's the atmosphere. Now, when we look at what is said about the Jews in the trial, we have to sort out two forms of persecution. The initial laws passed by Vichy against the Jews were French-inspired and nothing to do with the Germans. So the law, for example, to exclude Jews from a whole series of professions, the medical profession, legal profession, journalism, so on, that was nothing to do with the Germans. It was a Vichy-sponsored law, the Statute of Jews, and it applied to French Jews, to people who've been French for four generations. It applied to any French Jew. Now, the truth is that at the trial, nobody raised that issue. But then there's a second kind of persecution, which is murdering Jews. 25% of French Jewish citizens, numbering 75,000, were sent by cattle cars to the extermination camps where they were gassed. Foreign Jews in France, like my grandparents and my mom, were much more likely to be sent to the concentration camps. There were many roundups of Jews in Paris, and then later in Marseille, where my grandparents had been in hiding for years. Tell us about that. Arresting Jews in 1942 and from then onwards in Paris, and later, as you mentioned, in Marseille, it's January 1943, to deport them to be exterminated. Now, that was discussed at the trial because it was known that the French police had played a role in arresting these Jews for the Germans. And it is therefore briefly discussed, but I suppose nobody really knows what we now know, thanks to the work of the two historians, Serge Klaasveldt and Robert Paxton, 
about the role that Vichy played in facilitating that. So previously, at the trial, basically, the line of the defence was, yeah, yes, Jews were arrested, but Vichy did its best to halt the process. It wasn't behind it. It was the Germans, etc. No Jew was called upon to testify in the entire trial, except Leon Blum, but he was there because he was a socialist. He wouldn't have wanted to be there as a Jew. He wanted to be there as a French socialist. So no Jew was called to testify as a Jew for the specific experience of the Jews. I have another story from my grandparents, which I think helps us explore the culpability of the Vichy regime. After the various roundups and deportations of Jews to the death camps, there were many Jewish orphans. The Quakers from Philadelphia raised a substantial sum of money and chartered the Serpa Pinto, a Portuguese ship, to bring 50 Jewish orphans from France to the United States. To leave France required an exit visa. You may recall that critical document is central to the plot of the film Casablanca. No Jew could get one. The U.S. Ambassador to Vichy, Admiral Leahy, requested to Vichy's Prime Minister Laval that he provide the orphans the exit visas, but Laval would not budge. My grandfather was in Marseille in November 1942 when the Americans invaded Casablanca in Operation Torch, and the French did not put up much of a fight. Hitler panicked and had German troops invade Vichy, France. My grandparents witnessed German soldiers goose-step into Marseille. My grandfather was aware that his ongoing efforts for a French exit visa were pointless and they would have to race for the French-Spanish border. My grandfather was introduced to the Quaker representative in Marseille and he offered my grandparents the opportunity to join the voyage on the Serpapinto ship out of Lisbon if my grandfather agreed to be the medical doctor on the trip for the orphans. He agreed. He then began his escape from France. With a combination of luck and assistance from the French resistance, the Maquis, my grandparents and my mom successfully got to Lisbon, where they waited for two months for the orphans before the Quakers gave up and traveled back to Philadelphia without them. Prime Minister Raval never provided the orphans the necessary exit visas, and these children were later murdered in the German concentration camps. Patent appointed Laval as his number two in the Vichy government. How should we judge Vichy leaders for the roundup and the murder of the French Jews? Your story is very powerful because it's so concrete. Laval cared not one iota about the Jews. When the arrests of Jews were starting, you know, in July 1942, Laval actually, to the German surprise, said, the Germans were initially only asking for the arrests of adults. We should give them the children as well. And the Germans were a bit surprised. Why is he saying that? And Laval said, oh, it's a humanitarian measure. I would like the families to be together. It was, of course, a pure cruelty. <laughs> he didn't care. Laval was absolutely culpable for exactly the reasons you've said. But I don't think we should let Petain off the hook. Petain was the head of state. And we know that at a meeting which took place in the 2nd of July, 1942, about the deal that the French have struck with the Germans about the French police playing a role in the roundups of Jews. And what is the deal? The French said, we will cooperate in the arrest of Jews, providing it's non-French Jews who are arrested. But we are willing to instruct the police in the unoccupied zone. 
which the Germans have no control over, supposedly, at this stage in July 1942, to participate. And the Germans are surprised. The French are actually volunteering their police to arrest Jews in their zone. And that's an extraordinary moment. And at the meeting that ratified that, Laval said about the foreign Jews that these are just, you know, the garbage of Europe. Why do we want them? And Pétain said something like, I think public opinion will fully understand this decision. So I would want to insist that Pétain was as much behind it, even if, you know, he was not taking the decisions as Laval. On November 11, 1942, the German army invaded Vichy, France. The following day, the head of the Vichy police announced that no Jew could leave Marseille or travel anywhere in southern France by train. My grandparents violated that rule and took a train from Marseille to Perpignan, near the Spanish border, as they headed to climb the Pyrenees Mountains into neutral Spain. Ten weeks later, René Bousquet, the head of the Vichy France police, organized a massive roundup of the Jews in Marseille. All the police in the entire southern part of France participated in that roundup done in the middle of the night. This was a massive logistical enterprise that required locksmiths, railroad operators, and others to make this operation successful. These Jews in that roundup were all murdered at Auschwitz a few weeks later. The French hired a professional photographer who took pictures of the roundup that is available online. It's shocking. There's an unbelievable photograph of a smiling René Bousquet at a meeting with the SS officer planning the roundup. How is it possible that René Bousquet would not be indicted for war crimes until the 1990s and would be for decades one of French Prime Minister Mitterrand's closest confidants? The more you talk about this situation with your grandparents, the more I could see that they were very canny and very intelligent and sensibly non-trusting. I don't know what the word is. The tragedy for many Jews is that they believed in Vichy. So your grandparents, it seems to me from what you've been saying, survived with some luck. There's always luck. Oh, for sure. Some luck and a lot of lucidity and a lot of intelligence. But for many, there was no luck. The particular roundup in Marseille, it's not as written about and famous as it should be, the Marseille one. Everybody writes about the Vel d'Hiver, the big roundup, which was the most dramatic and horrible. There's no doubt that took place in Paris in July 42. But the one in January 43 in Marseille was a large-scale operation. It isn't as present in the memory as it should be. Vichy wasn't in origin about killing Jews. It was about discriminating. The Germans was about killing Jews. But we mustn't make the two watertight because if you start persecuting Jews, it becomes easier to kind of accept these other things. In your mind, already the Jews are enemies. So it's not a big moral dilemma. And then also lots of these little restrictions, like restrictions on movement, having Jews stamped on your identity card, all those kinds of things, they further tighten the net around the Jews. I would want to make a distinction, but let's also be clear that there's a porousness between the two kinds of anti-Semitism, and the one helps the other, facilitates the other. That example you gave about not being allowed to move is a very good example of that. So the man who was in charge of these operations was the head of the police, a man called René Bousquet. He was put on trial after the war, and he was either quitted or got a very small sentence. Why? Because he was able to show that he had helped resistors. 
And in the mind of 1945, helping the resistance is a bigger thing than whatever you might have done in relation to the Jews. We've got to remember the Jews are not central in 45. So when in the 1980s people start to think that what happened to the Jews is the issue, partly as a result of the Eichmann trial, partly as a result of an interview that was carried out by two journalists who found an extraordinary, vile, anti-Semitic Vichy official who'd taken refuge in Franco-Spain. He was called Daki de Pelpois. It's 1978 we're in. And he gave this interview in Spain to some journalists, and he said only lice were gassed in Auschwitz, only fleas, etc., etc. So this caused a shock in France that this man should still actually be alive, the man who had been a Vichy official. And one of the things he said in his interview was the man who was really responsible for the persecution was Bousquet. So suddenly the name of Bousquet is there when it hadn't been before. So Bousquet is finally indicted. But Bousquet never comes to trial either because he's assassinated by a kind of mad publicity seeker before he can come to trial in, I think, 1993. So the trial never happens. So they do eventually put on trial in 1995 a rather minor Vichy official, but it's all they can find. He's a kind of substitute for the real big fish who are no longer there, a man called Maurice Papon, who had been an official in Bordeaux, who definitely played a role in rounding up Jews. And he's put on trial for crimes against humanity, and he's found guilty. So that was the first time, as it were, a French court had found a French a Vichy official responsible for crimes against humanity. The first president to actually accept responsibility on behalf of France for France was Jacques Chirac, in 1995. He was just a completely useless president in every way, but he did something which is very important. He made a speech a few weeks after becoming president on the anniversary of the roundup of Jews in Paris, the Baffle of the Velle d'Hiver. It's called that because the Jews who were arrested, women, children particularly, were parked in a big sports stadium before being deported and in atrocious conditions, in horrible conditions with no sanitation, no food, no water, intense heat, and so on. So Chirac, on the anniversary of that event, made a very solemn speech where he said, on that day, France committed the irreparable. And the key thing is France, not the so-called Vichy government, but France. And since that moment, no French president has rode back from that. That was followed by a whole series of organizations, churches, medical profession, railways, architects, professional organizations, all did a kind of mea culpa for what they'd done in the war. The line today is France committed an irreparable act, but and there was a but in Chirac's speech. There was another France, and that other France was all the French people who saved Jews individually in all kinds of ways. You know, there were good policemen, there were good concierges, there were good shopkeepers, etc. In other words, the pendulum swung from there's no question about the crimes of Vichy and the things we've been talking about today. But there's a danger of a new myth which is coming, which is that almost every French person in their own way did a little bit to help the Jews. And I'm suspicious of that pendulum swinging too far in that direction. In 1942, in Marseille, it became too dangerous for Jews to be walking around town. My grandparents and my mom went into hiding on a farm just outside of town. My mother attended a kindergarten with her blonde hair and blue eyes wearing a cross and tried to blend in. 
when my grandparents made that decision in that second week of November 1942 to make a run for the border, the farmer graciously offered to raise my mother as his child until after the war. My grandfather thought it made good rational sense, but my grandmother overruled him and decided that they would live and die as a family. She would not leave her daughter behind, even given the low risk of success. These were incredibly difficult choices for a parent to make. Very difficult choices. I don't know if you've ever read a book by an extraordinary historian who has a very similar sort of story. It's called Saul Friedlander. He's an Israeli historian now. He wrote an extraordinary memoir about his own saving. In that case, the choice was different. His parents, they were refugees, I mean, similar to your grandparents, after March 1939, they found themselves in France. The net is increasingly tightening on them. And the parents, in this case, take a different decision. They put their little boy in a Catholic family to save him. The parents both die. They don't manage to escape like your grandparents. So they die. He survives. And what's extraordinary about the story he tells in this really one of the most remarkable memoirs I've ever read, actually, is how his only way of surviving mentally was simply to forget his parents. So he was a little boy, let's say he was nine or something, and he just cut it out. And he thought he was a good little Catholic and he admired Marshal Petain and he wanted to become a Catholic priest. And there's a very moving moment when he goes to see his Catholic priest and he tells him what he wants. He says, I want to join the church. I want to become a priest. And this priest, to his credit, says, well, before you need to know who you are and where you come from. And so he tells him, and anyway, the boy goes through a terrible crisis and he realizes he's not going to become a priest and he becomes indeed an active Zionist. And the book ends with him arriving, getting smuggled on a ship which arrives in Israel in 1948. These are terrible choices to have to make. His parents made their choice. In their case, if they hadn't made that choice, he probably wouldn't have been alive. Your book on the trial of Patan is really about the memory of Vichy. In 1969, a documentary is released entitled The Sorrow and the Pity, which forces the French to reconsider their memory of what happened during the German occupation during the war. Very few French were members of the resistance. Most collaborated. Many behaved badly. Tell us about the living memory of Vichy. So the trial ends in August. Pétain is sentenced to death. The death sentence is commuted to life imprisonment because it would be grotesque to shoot a semi-senile 90-year-old man. and Nobody particularly wants that, so it would serve no purpose. But he's sentenced to death. That's the key thing. It's symbolic. He dies in 1951. And then, yes, there's a period when the French kind of want to put this behind them. And it's perfectly understandable. Most countries that go through that kind of upheaval and trauma need to go through a period of forgetting. It's the only way you get through it. You could say Spain, after the death of Franco, did it. And it's only now that they're starting to talk much more about Franco. So, yes, for a period, the French, they just kind of get on with their lives There's a new young generation, a protest generation, which is responsible for the famous student upheavals of May 68, you know, all over Europe and in America. And in France, one of the things that it's about is wanting to question some of the myths they've been brought up with about the past. The film called The Sorrow and the Pity, 
made by the son of a Jewish filmmaker, Max Ophüls, who had gone to the United States during the war, and his son, Marcel Ophüls, makes his film called The Sorrow and the Pity. It was a necessary smashing, as it were, of myths, because until you smash myths, you can't piece everything back together again and try and get it right. So that film was fantastically important. And so for the 70s, 80s, 90s, right up to today, the war is more present, actually, than it had been in some ways in the 1950s and early 1960s. I end each of my podcasts on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about as it relates to remembering Vichy France, particularly as it relates to the ongoing strength of right-wing parties in France? Most people can agree about the Vichy regime today. We can all sort of say, oh, Vichy was a bad thing, put it aside, and then propagate right-wing ideas, pretending they have nothing to do with Vichy. In other words, whitewashing. Marine Le Pen now distances herself from Vichy because she realizes there's no mileage in invoking Vichy. As I said, the case is closed in that sense. But the policies she is advocating, they are extremely right-wing. They're about the persecution of minorities, not Jewish minorities now, because it's Muslim minorities in France today. Inward-looking nationalism, hostility to Europe, to internationalism, which was very Vichy, obsession with decadence and the need for sort of national renewal. I'm not vastly optimistic for France, though I'm not totally pessimistic either. Thanks to Julian for joining us today. My family escaped from Vichy, France in November 42, and this historical topic is personal for me. If you're interested in learning more, I encourage you to read my grandfather, George Karp's memoir, entitled The McKee Connection, which is available on the Kindle, or alternatively, you can listen to me read his memoir aloud on Audible Books. My mother's sister, my aunt Sharon Karp, produced a documentary film entitled A Song for You, about my grandparents' escape from Europe. You can find this 80-minute film with a link in the transcript. If you missed last week's show, check it out. The podcast subject was Inflation Isn't Going Away. Our speaker was Boris Vladimirov, who is a market strategist at Goldman Sachs. Boris discussed the causes of the recent surge in long-term interest rates and whether this would cause a recession. Boris also outlined why inflation expectations are unlikely to fall anytime soon, and there's a risk that the Fed may abandon their 2% inflation target for something higher. You could find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye.